Father, we recognize that your word is alive and it's active and it's sharp. We can't say that about any other written piece of literature on planet earth. We can say that your word is alive and we can say that it it feeds our soul. God, we ask that you would use your word right now and the, the power of your Holy Spirit in this place, that you would refresh us, that you would wash our eyes, that you would allow us to see your majesty and allow us to see the intricacy in, in which you go to great lengths to rescue us. Father, I ask that you would speak to every individual soul here this morning in the way that only you can. Only you know specifically what's going on in each person's life. So God, we ask that you would do this believing that you want the very best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10? While you're turning there, um, I'm going to put a passage up on the screen for you. Acts chapter 10 and verse 1, but um, I want you to see Ephesians 4.13. It's a, it's a measuring rod. It's, um, it's a passage that God gives us to gauge where we're at personally. I went to see my, um, my physician this week, my doctor, to have a, my annual physical. And, um, you know, before they let you go into the exam room to be seen by the doctor, they make you stand on the scale. And that's humiliating enough. And, and then you've got to go um, stand underneath this little measuring rod, you know, the, the, this little tape measure that's on the wall, and put your back against it, and they, they bring it down to measure your height. And the nurse looks at it and says, well, a little bit more than six foot one. And I'm thinking, a little bit more? It's like six foot one and a half, lady, say it. Because I, I want to account for that full height, you know. And I didn't like her measuring rod, so I wanted to turn around and check and see if it was actually six foot one and a half. I want to know if I've shrunk or not. This measuring rod that God has here in Ephesians 4.13 is really difficult because when we look at God's tape measure and what we're told we're supposed to measure up to, the full measure of the maturity of Christ, I want to sit down with you and find somebody else to teach. Because when we look at something like that and, and we see that a mature man, according to God's measuring rod, is the one who measures up to the fullness of the measure of the maturity of Christ, it, it makes us all want to kind of just shrink back. That that's what we've really been looking at over the last four weeks and, and now in this fifth week is how does God measure the maturity of our faith? It, it, what does it look like in our life to bear this out to the degree that God would say, that person is increasing and growing in their faith. Here's what I've come to understand. I said this to you last week. Faith is not really maturing faith. Faith is not really maturing faith until it's acted on. Until you've taken an action step. Then you can begin to gauge whether or not it's maturing and growing. So uh, let me put this quote on the screen for you to see. I shared it last week. I want to share it with you again this week. In, in order for faith to grow, look, there we go. In order for faith to grow, it must see beyond circumstances to the God who is greater than the circumstances you may be facing at the moment. Can you chew on that for a minute? In order for your faith to grow, it's really got to see beyond the circumstances you might be in in this moment. Let me flesh that out with you. Because this is what we talked about over the last four weeks. 
in order for, like we saw last week, for Abram's faith to grow, it wasn't really maturing faith, even though he knew he heard God, and he knew that God told him he could go to a new land, a promised land. It wasn't really maturing faith until he packed the bags and said, come on, honey, let's go. And they moved to an entirely new region. The same is true two weeks ago for Bartimaeus. When we looked at the blind man on the side of the road, it wasn't really maturing faith until he called out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He had to take the action step. He believed God could heal him, but it wasn't really maturing faith until he called it out. What about the father of the demon-possessed boy? He absolutely believed that Jesus could free him of his chains. He believed that Jesus could heal his son, but it wasn't really maturing faith until he got down on his knees before Jesus and said, I believe you can do this. He took the action step of asking God to intervene. What about Joshua? Go all the way back to the beginning, the fourth, four weeks ago when we started. Two million people standing behind him on the banks of the Jordan River at flood stage. He knew he heard God, but it wasn't really radical. It wasn't really maturing faith until he said, okay, let's step into the river. See, it's, it's the action of being able to see beyond the circumstances to the God who is greater than the circumstances you might be facing at this moment. The common link in each of the four weeks that we've looked at so far, and you're going to find it in the fifth week as well, this common link is there's an action that the individual took, understanding that God wanted to release His power into their life. And it took place through communication with God. In other words, they're in prayer mode. Let me take you to a more modern example, case in point. It's 1908. John and Jessica Perkins are on a steamship outside of North Africa. They found themselves on a steamship because they believed while they were living in Europe that God had whispered in their ear to tell them to serve the people of Africa. So John and Jess get on a steamship in 1908 and they're sailing with a captain they've never known before. They've sold all of their possessions and they're rounding the northwest corner of Africa and they come to a region that we know today as Liberia. And getting closer to shore, around Liberia, they see a bay, a long stretch of white sandy beach, jungle forest behind it, and God whispers in their ear, this is the place. This is to be your new home. So John, with his wife Jess, goes to the captain of the steamship and says, this is it. This is where we're supposed to get off. Will you take us ashore? And the captain of the steamship says to them, no, I will not. No way. You don't understand. That's cannibal country. People go in there and they never come out again. I'm not letting you off. You're not getting off my ship. Let's leave John and Jess on that steamship for a minute and go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is the story of Peter taking a first step along with a man by the name of Cornelius. And we're going to do something we don't typically do here at New Hope. Instead of going verse by verse and word by word the way we typically do, I'm going to put large chunks of the story because this is a huge narrative. 
on the screen, and we won't take it all word by word, but we're going to take big chunks at a time and, and move through it. So go with me to Acts chapter 10 and verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, they're there in the pew racks in front of you, and you can take one of those with you when you leave today. If you don't own a Bible, really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So it's a gift from us to you. But follow along on the screen or in a Bible in front of you. Acts chapter 10 and verse 1 says this, now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in, and he said to him, Cornelius, verse 4, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some, of me, some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, we're told that Cornelius is a centurion, and he's a member of the Italian cohort. Now, in this region of Judea at this period of time, the Jews believed that Jerusalem was the capital city. But the Romans believed that Caesarea was the capital city because they had invested so much money in it. And that's what, it was named Caesarea because of Caesar. Rome had dumped all kinds of money into this metropolis. And so they stationed a, a, a large garrison of men there. As a matter of fact, there were 6,000 men. So think like Fort Hood or Fort Bragg. It was a military encampment at Caesarea, also the capital city. So we've got a large military garrison. We've got a capital city of Caesarea. And this man by the name of Cornelius is stationed there. We're told he's a member of the Italian cohort well, what we know historically about the Italian cohort is that this is a group of guys you don't mess with. This is special ops. So think SEAL team. Think Green Beret. Think Army Rangers. These guys are the backbone of the Roman army. And a centurion is commanding 100 of these warlike men who have this nature of being sword-wielding yielding men. And so he's in charge, he's a, he's a leader, he's a commander. We're told according to a historian that lived at that period of time in the first century, this is their character. I want you to see this quote on the screen. They were not so much venturesome daredevils as natural leaders of a steady and sedate spirit, not so much men who will initiate attacks and open the battle as men who will hold their ground when worsted and hard-pressed and be ready to die at their post. So Cornelius is a guy who's achieved a position in the Roman hierarchy by being intelligent and strong and very responsible and reliable and loyal to Rome. That's what he's made up by. And he's a member of the special forces. So he understands what it means to be loyal, but he also understands, according to verse 2, to be devout and a man who feared God. And do you notice it says that he gave alms and he prayed continually? It means he gave money away freely to help people in need. So this guy's a seeker. He doesn't know Jesus. But he's trying to know God, and so he's very devout in his behavior. He's a good businessman because he's achieved some rank. He's got his household in order according to what we just read. So he has a degree of light, but he doesn't have the whole picture. And God's about to give him some more light 
to help him understand because God always responds to a seeking heart, doesn't he? God always responds to a seeking heart, doesn't he? He just does that. That's who God is. He responds to some. Jeremiah said, if you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. You're not going to find a better example in all of the Bible than the balance between election and predestination and the issue of free will than what you will in this story. You get the 10,000-foot view. You get God's view looking down on a situation where you have a man who's got free will and he's desiring to know God. And yet at the same time, God is going to orchestrate the circumstances for him to find him. And you find predestination and election working out. So there's no conflict in the mind of God. He totally can put these pieces together. Verse 2 also says he's one who feared God, meaning this guy's got the basics down because his household feared God also. So he's raised his kids well. He's achieved rank in the military. He's respected by the fighting men who are part of the special forces team. He continually prays. He's given away his money to help the poor. And we see in verse 3, at the ninth hour, something remarkable happened. Now the ninth hour is 3 in the afternoon. We're told that 3 in the afternoon, historically, was what the Jews viewed as the hour of prayer in the midst of the day. Let me show you an example on the screen. It comes from Acts 3.1. It says this, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So for whatever reason, this Roman, who's not a Jew, is practicing what the Jews do. He's praying at three in the afternoon. And he's asking God to help him know him better. So in verse 4, we see that this angel shows up. Now at this moment, you've got a guy who's not just a leader, he's a leader of leaders, who knows what it is to go to war. And he sees this vision, and Scripture says he becomes much alarmed. Well, that's treating it fairly gently. First of all, let me show you the first word that's used. It's the word entenizo. And it's in your notes, but it's on the screen also. It means his vision locked. Attention. That's where that word comes from. English word comes from this, attenzenizo. He was, he was locked onto this image. And the next word that's used is emphobos. When he's alarmed, it's emphobos. And it means he began to tremble. Because if you've read the descriptions of angels in the Bible, you understand that what he's seeing is amazing to his sight. So the angel engages with him in conversation. And he says something remarkable to me. He says, to this guy who doesn't know Jesus, your prayers have ascended before God and your alms, the giving of your money, have been remembered by him to the degree that God recognizes this guy has a sincere heart. He really is a seeker. So he's worshiping God within a framework, but it's incomplete. So let's commend him because he's abandoned the pagan gods of Rome. He's not worshiping the god, small g, of the rain or of the wheat field or of the clouds. He's not doing what the pagans do. He recognizes there's one God. And so God's going to give a specific action in response because despite this guy's sincerity, despite the fact that he's given away money and he's praying and he's raised his household well, God says that's not enough. You don't have a complete picture. You need something more. You need an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saved because Cornelius, it's about relationship. It's not about works, right, church? It's not about works. This guy's been doing works up to this point. 
And God's saying, you need something more. And this is why, because Acts 4.12 says this, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. But he doesn't know this name. He doesn't know Jesus. So God's going to arrange for that knowledge. So he says, go get Peter. You need to bring Peter here. And Cornelius' immediate action is what we would call his first step. Immediately, he calls his men to him, explains the whole thing, and sends them off to Joppa. Now, here's a question for you to ponder. Was not the angel capable of communicating the information about who Jesus was? Yeah, the angel could have done it. But God's choosing to work through men. So the angel could have revealed everything that Cornelius needed to know, But God chooses for him to bring Peter there. Why? Because God's going to work on Peter's heart at the same time. So back in Joppa, God's preparing Peter for this monumental moment. This that's about to unfold is something he could have never handled on his own. Something he couldn't begin to imagine that God was going to do. Now, it's lunchtime and Peter's hungry. Does he not always seem to be hungry to you? I mean, every time you look at Peter, it looks like he's ready to eat. And this particular story involves food, and it has a much, much deeper meaning, though. So Peter encounters God in a completely different way than Cornelius. Go with me to the next big chunk, verse 9. On the next day as they were on their way, that means the soldiers who were coming to find Peter, on the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. Next chunk, verse 12. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Now understand, just stop there for a second. He's not a vegetarian. He's not a vegan. That's not what's going on. This guy's used to eating meat. There's things he could do and there's things he couldn't do because of Jewish law. I'll touch on that in just a second. Go back with me to verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Verse 17, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. Verse 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Now, the issue of clean and unclean animals, you can learn about that yourself by looking at the book of Leviticus. I'm not going to get into that today. But God is dealing with these dietary restrictions here first. God had laid down some restrictions because when Israel in the Old Testament was living among pagan people, there were things that they were doing with food and things that they were using it for to offer it as sacrifices to the the pagan gods that God said, I want you to have nothing to do with that, not to even eat the food that they're using. So stay away from it. And so God laid down some dietary laws, things that they could do and couldn't do. But with the new covenant and the arrival of the church and Jesus, those restrictions in this case had ended. But Peter wasn't aware of this. 
He wasn't aware that God was bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together. Now, Peter is a devout Jew, and he's shocked. That's why you see the response, No way, Lord! I have never eaten anything unholy. All his life, he's been kosher. He has zealously kept the law. That's just what he does. He keeps every single rule. Every Jew did it. So that they wouldn't eat pork, for instance. They wouldn't even touch frog legs, the amphibian, things like that. They just wouldn't go there. What do you do when your instincts tell you to do one thing, but God calls you another way? What do you do when you're on the deck of the steamship and you believe God called you, but the captain of the ship says, where you want to go is full of cannibals. They will eat you. What do you do when God calls you one direction, but your instincts tell you to go the other way? What, what do you do in the office when God says, I want you to talk to your coworker today about me. And your instincts say, whoa, I'm going to get labeled if I do that. What do you do when you're in the hallway at school or on campus and God says, I want you to talk to me about your friend today? And your instincts say, oh, man, that is so uncomfortable. But God's called you very clearly. What do you do? How can Peter throw aside everything he's ever known all of his safety nets are up for grabs. You talk about a culture shift. So Peter resists so strong. In verse 15, we see the voice comes back, and it's the voice of God a second time saying, hey, what I've called holy, don't you call unholy. But Peter is so ingrained with the regulations, it has to be repeated to him three times. God has just told a Jew, it's okay to eat bacon. You, you get that? That's what's going on here. It's okay, Peter. You can eat pork chops. Now, the, the dietary law is one part of it. it, it, it there's two meanings here. And, and the dietary laws and the regulations that are abolished at this point are really, really significant. But what, here's the bigger picture. God is bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together because there is neither Jew nor Gentile in the church of Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling what he promised he would do. Now, Peter is baffled. Absolutely baffled, so we're told in verse 19. He's still pondering what the vision meant. He's still trying to figure out what God is saying. And he says, hey, by the way, there's three guys coming to look for you. Now, he doesn't tell Peter that they're Roman soldiers. See, Cornelius has just sent soldiers to get Peter. Can you imagine when he showed up at the gate and that's what he sees next? God has arranged the timing and the details of bringing together two individuals who would otherwise never, ever meet a man who is a commander in the Roman army who works for Caesar, who has nothing to do with Jews, and Peter in Joppa, 30 miles away, who's a devout Jew who has nothing to do with Romans, who actually saw Romans kill Jesus. It was a centurion that stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was executed. That's what Peter's being told he has to do to go with these individuals. Go with me to verse 21. You talk about a divine appointment. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? See, he still doesn't know. Verse 22, Then they said, Cornelius a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, 
was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he, sent, he invited them in and gave them lodging, and on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So now it's Peter's turn to take the first step, and he does something astonishing. He's just invited Gentiles to come and stay in a Jewish home. See, Jews didn't do that. No self-respecting Jew would not only not talk to a Gentile, they would never invite them in for lodging. Would that have happened before God had intervened two hours earlier? No way. God is already breaking the mold around his heart, especially to invite a Roman soldier in who's occupying the Holy Land. God's transforming his heart right in front of our eyes and removing prejudice. Now, there's a significant detail here in verse 23 that you, I encourage you to read chapter 11 later today if you get a chance to put the whole story together, chapter 10 and chapter 11. But in 23, we're told that there's some of the brethren who have just accompanied him to Joppa, meaning they're Jews who are believers in Jesus. And so Peter takes six of those guys with him. It becomes important later in the story. God has just given him some information. And now he's got to do something with it. How does he respond? Well, let's go a little bit deeper because we understand what obedience looks like. Matter of fact, let me take you just a little bit deeper before we go to the narrative. The Bible teaches that obedience escorts true faith. Your obedience in the trueness of your faith walk hand in hand, according to what Scripture tells us. Let me show you a passage up on the screen. Romans 16, 26 says this. According to the gospel according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. You see that phrase, obedience of faith? That phrase is repeated over and over and over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Because God expects that when he calls us to do something, we will be obedient to it. Let's go deeper still, because we were talking about measuring rods a few minutes ago. This issue of obedience can be measured by one particular verse in Scripture. Look with me on the screen at 1 John 2.3. By this we know that we have come to know him. See, there's the measuring rod. God's got the tape measure out. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's harsh, isn't it? See, that's why some measuring rods are really, really uncomfortable. God says, this is what my measuring rod looks like. And if you're not there in obedience to me, you're a liar. So Peter's got to do something with this information. Does he be obedient to God and ignore all of his natural instincts? Let's see. Go with me to verse 24. On the following day, he, meaning Peter, entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. Verse 24 says, The following day he entered Caesarea. That is all that I need to know about Peter. Everything in a nutshell. He's let his faith match his talk. It's, It's obedience 101. Peter's returning with the messengers. Now, gratefully, God gives us a little bit more to the story because two worlds are about to collide. Seven devout Orthodox Jews are about to walk into the home of a special ops team, 
Roman warriors who have gathered their family members together. Can you imagine how awkward that was? Hey, how you doing? Killed any Jews lately? Hope I'm not the next one. This is a really awkward situation. You're looking at a revolutionary moment in the history of the church. Cornelius, as you notice, is really subtle, believed God. He had not been idle. He's been anticipating Peter's arrival. So what does he do? He gathers all of his military buddies together. So let's let's move on because we get some insight into the framework of Peter's thinking here. In, In verse 28, it says this, And he said to them, Peter speaking, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. That's code for, I'm not supposed to be here. You're not the kind of people I hang out with. I mean, you're way outside of my social circle. See, he feels the need to qualify it. He's explaining to them, this doesn't happen. But yet he goes on further because he has lived his life by an imperative rule. Peter lived his entire life by the the thought that his mom and dad said, don't do this. Don't hang out with Gentiles. Do you think that in this moment, those seven boys felt naughty? I'm thinking they did. Because mom and dad had said, don't eat with them, don't talk to them, don't even look at them. They're Gentiles. Look with me at the next part of verse 28. And yet, God has shown to me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? See, he still doesn't know. Look at Cornelius. See, because you never met a Christian, a Gentile Christian. Verse 30, Cornelius says this. Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea, so I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. What do you think that message was? What do you think the message was that Peter's supposed to deliver? Because he's standing at the door saying, why have you guys sent for me? And Cornelius isn't filling them in. He's saying, what have you been commanded by the Lord to tell us? We want to hear. I'm thinking they're like a bunch of kids waiting for a Disney movie to start with their, their bowl of popcorn. What is it? We want to know. What, what are you supposed to tell us why? Because Cornelius has life figured out. He thinks he understands God. He prays regularly. He gives his money away. He's achieved status in life. But God says, you're missing something. And Peter knows what the something is. So I'm thinking they're waiting pretty intensely. So he uses this word in verse 33. He says, we want to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. It's it's in your notes, but it's not going to be on the screen. This word, prostasso, it's a military order. It means you've been commanded to do something by your commander. What is it? See, because Cornelius understood that when the Lord speaks, he's expecting obedience. That's what God's looking for in our life. And so Cornelius naturally uses this word. Now, until this moment, Peter's not sure why he's there. He's not sure until this has been asked of him. He's never known a Gentile Christian. But does God know? Does God know why Peter's there? God knows. 
because God heard a man praying four days earlier. God listened to a man who was sincerely seeking after him. So God knows God heard a man praying in his house because we're told in verse 30, Cornelius says four days ago, I was praying. Do you notice that this entire encounter originated in one specific action? Did you catch it? It's prayer. Cornelius is serious about seeking after God, and so he's praying before God. Peter is praying on the rooftop, and these two guys who had nothing to do with each other opened themselves up to a God encounter because of prayer. Did God respond and answer prayer? How about that, New Hope? Did God respond? I'm thinking so, because Peter's standing there at the door. And he hears this word, you've been commanded to do something, Peter. Prostasso, tell us what it is. So in verse 38, we're told Peter opens his mouth and eloquently begins to explain the gospel. Here's how he sums it up in verse 39. He says this, you see it on the screen, we are witnesses of all the things he did, speaking of Jesus, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Verse 40, you can circle this one in your Bible. God raised him up on the third day. God raised him up, church. That's what Michael was just talking about at the piano. We forget about how magnificent that is. Jesus defeated death. God raised him up on the third day. This was news That Cornelius didn't know that there was a way to God through this one. Look look with me at who this one is. Verse 42, it says this, and he ordered us to preach. See, Peter's got a command. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one. This is the one who's been appointed the judge of the living and the dead, Cornelius. Now, if you go on to read the rest of the story, when you get a chance, you find that the entire household turned their life over to Christ. So let's go back to John and Jess on the boat. John and Jessica are on a steamship in 1908, and they've told the captain to let them off. And the captain says, there's cannibals there, and they will eat you. But John and Jess saw beyond the circumstances to the God who's greater than the circumstances, and they said, no, let us off. God told us this is to be our new home. And so the captain loads their belongings into a little small boat and has them begin rowing towards the shore. Now what they did not know is that a young man by the name of Jasper Tohe was standing on the beach. And seven days earlier, he was in the midst of the jungle in the midnight sky and he looked up at the stars and he knew that there was a God in heaven, but he didn't know how to get to him. And so he cried out in prayer, God, will you help me to find you? And God said to him, Jasper, go to Garraway Beach, and there you will see a smoking box on the water. And two people will get off the smoking box and get into a smaller box. And those two people will come ashore, and they will tell you how to find me. So Jasper started out, and walked seven days, arriving at Garraway Beach on Christmas Day, 1908. And John and Jessica 
were rowing to shore when he saw a smoking box on the water and two people in a smaller box coming to the beach. So naturally, he walked down to the two people because God said they'd be there. And he couldn't speak their language and they couldn't speak his, so all he did was... And they walked silently with him for seven days into the deepest, darkest part of Liberia. And in his village, they learned his language and he learned their language and they led him to faith in Jesus Christ. And they established a church And Jasper Tohe launched hundreds of churches all over Liberia by which thousands of people came to know faith in Jesus Christ. See, they've got a maturing faith because they've acted on what they had information of that God told them to do. That's what maturing faith looks like. So in order for faith to grow, it's got to see beyond the circumstances to the God who's greater than the circumstances and really, really trust him. We close with this one little caption from Peter in Acts chapter 11, and I really do encourage you to read Acts chapter 11, but this is what happened. Peter went back to Jerusalem after the whole household turned their life over to Christ, and he met with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, and he told them about this magnificent story, and you know what their response was? We heard that you ate with Gentiles, and you sat down with pagans. You went into their home. Peter, give us an accounting. Why would you do this? Now, they're Christians, but they hadn't heard what Peter had heard up to this point. Peter explained everything to them, and this was his response. Who am I to stand in the way of God? Who am I that I would stand in God's way? Would that 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 would be our response, church, every single time we hear God calling us to respond, that we would respond that way. So question for you to ponder, have you been standing in God's way? Simply by not doing what he's gifted you to do and equipped you to do. What about you? Are, Are you on the adventure that God has planned for you since the very beginning of your life? Have you really surrendered to him and said, I I just give it all to you, whatever you want to do with me. I don't care. I'm completely yours. Just do what you want to do through me. That's how I'm going to pray for us this morning because I have to check myself on that issue too. Am I fully surrendered? So let me just pray with you right now that we would be in that place where our heart would be opened up to God so he can do what he wants to. If that's where your heart's at, just join me in that prayer. Father, we come before you as individuals specifically recognizing that you you talk to us But many times we ignore your voice. Our basic instincts sometimes, God, tell us to go an opposite direction and you call us another way. I pray that you would help us to check our heart. So Father, that first requires us to be in a place where we're surrendered and that we're open to you. So I'm going to ask, Father, that you help us to be in a place where we're willing to take that bold first step, and if we're believers in Jesus, that we would simply ask you the same thing that Jesus asked of you before he's about to be crucified. When he cried out to you, not my will, but your will be done. Father, that's what we're looking for, is that your will would be done through our life. Help us to understand your will. 
But help us to be willing to yield to your direction. I pray for that earnestly, Father, for our entire church, that we would not miss what you're calling us to do. Father, corporately and individually. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen.